Keith thinks that every talk needs to start with a story. So I was trying to think of some kind of story to share. And um, the only thing I could come up with was either some, like, tearjerker kind of story of some poor person who had suffered some awful, grievous loss in um, childhood. Um, It would be a real downer. Um, I couldn't think of anything funny either, you know, related to this topic. I was trying to think of some metaphor for the void or something that would be really funny. I couldn't think of anything. Uh, But what came to mind is this fascinating article that I found uh, last week. I like to read uh, BBC News on the on the net and um, this is about a woman from Afghanistan and she is a helicopter pilot that really caught my attention I really um, have a heart for women from Central Asia I've had a number of students from um, Afghanistan Pakistan Iran Iraq those places and um, so this really caught my attention and um, this this is her story um, She's talking about her and her sister and their experience in Afghanistan. And it has a really surprising twist. When I first read it, I was like, wow, this is like a story about women's empowerment. You know, when you think about, like, women doing things, like becoming, like, pilots and astronauts are kind of right up there at the top, right, of, like, breaking the, like, vocational ceiling uh, for women. Um, But this has a really interesting twist in the middle. Uh, Her name is uh, Latifa Nabizada. She says, my sister and I always talked about the stars and the universe. We talked about how how airplanes were made and what it would be like to fly one, how it would feel to be a pilot. There were water bluffs bluffs near our house where we lived, and I used to climb on top and imagine I was flying a helicopter. After we finished school, my sister and I told our parents that we wanted to be professional pilots. They were quite shocked. At the time, not many women in Afghanistan could work. And there we were, thinking of becoming pilots. But we managed to convince them. My father's support was huge, and it helped us a lot. Eventually, we joined the military in 1989 after being rejected many times. There were no women's uniforms, and so we made our own. We were the first two women pilots in Afghan Air Force history. Um, My first independent flight was an unforgettable experience. Um, It was part of my examination. I flew, I flew, and it felt really great, and I thought, this is what you get after all that hard work. At that time, my teachers kept saying, please, pay attention. Look down at all those government officials. Look at all those flowers in their hand. They are just waiting for you to come down, and they will greet you. Um, Then, in 1996, the Taliban secured Kabul, and and my sister and I moved to a more secure city. General Dotson was a commander at the time in northern Afghanistan, and he helped us a lot, giving us a a secure place to live. He wanted the news to go out all over the world that he was a supporter of women's rights. During this time, we flew missions, and we fought the Taliban. So I don't know about you, but I have my image, the image in my mind. I don't know if any of you saw Avatar, but there's this woman helicopter pilot there. She is not feminine at all, okay? I mean, she is like... She is tough. She is really tough, right? So this is sort of my image 
of this Afghani woman. Then things changed. She said, before long, all women were forced, uh, like us, were forced to flee to Pakistan, where we wove carpets for several years, keeping a low profile and fearing for our lives. But eventually, we were able to return to Kabul. I went to the military base, and I said, I'm back, and I want to start working again. They told me there would be a celebration in Kabul in a couple of days' time, and my first flight would be during that celebration. And it was beautiful. My sister and I were both married in 2006 and then became pregnant within weeks of one another. There was a need even then for us to fly, and we flew a lot of missions during our pregnancies. Despite that, I managed to bring my daughter into the world well enough. But my sister had difficulty in her childbirth. The doctor at the time said she had a choice. Do you want us to save your baby or yourself? And she was in love with her baby. And she said, save the baby, whichever way you can. The next day she died. All our life we had been together and played together and flown together. She was my strength and I was hers. And we had been through difficult missions and on the front line. We had transferred dead bodies and the injured. I cannot tell you how it feels every day to be without her. But I am bringing up her child. I breastfed my niece as well as my own daughter with her mother helping us with the child care. Um, eventually, I was ready to go back to work, but there was no one to take care of my daughter at home. There's no such thing as kindergarten for the Afghans in the military. So most of the time, I took my baby with me in the helicopter. She has grown up in the helicopter. She was only two years old, two months old when we first flew together. She would fall into a deep sleep, and as she grew up, she'd stand next to me, and whenever she felt sleepy, she would lay her head on my shoulder and fall asleep. When our American advisors saw this, they would say, don't keep her here, she'll be in danger, put her in the cabin. But my daughter would cling onto my clothes and say, mom, mom, I don't want to go there, I want to stay with you. I would assure my American colleagues that if she stayed with me, I would fly safely. We were very cautious. We only went together on the routes that we knew were secure. Um, customarily, when you ask a kid whose child they are, they give their father's name. But my daughter says, I am the, I am the daughter of Pilot Latifa. She is immensely proud, and so am I. Um, it's a very interesting story. Um, I think if this was... A, um, I think it's unlikely if this was an American pilot that the climax of her story would be about um, breastfeeding her niece and taking her baby with her on the helicopter. Um, she somehow maintained this incredible value of herself as a woman, as a mother. Um, she didn't see these two worlds as something that needed to be um, torn apart. And mind you, this is a very unlikely situation. I'm not recommending to any of you that you would, um, you know, have some sort of dangerous career and bring your babies with you. That's not what I'm saying. Uh, but what I am saying is that there is this instinct uh, that we have in women, as women, unless something's happened, to really care for, to love and to nurture our babies. And it's um, something of great nobility. Uh, one of the reasons I think that little girl admires her mom is because her mom 
didn't go off to do her own thing and leave her to forget her. But she remained that integral part of her family. Um, the story, the teaching I'm giving you today is one that I heard, I think, the first time in 1989. And I have to say, it really changed the course of my life. It gave me some understanding of things that had happened to me. It answered that question that maybe some of you ask yourselves, why am I so messed up? Um, I was the kind of person you're like, I am so depressed, I'm so anxious, I'm so this, that, and the other. You know, maybe something really traumatic happened to me and I've suppressed it. Um, you know, in the worst case scenarios, people will be like, I think I was like abducted, you know, by either A, aliens, or B, you know, satanic witchcraft people or whatever. Uh, you know, like only that could explain why I am so deeply troubled on the inside. And this teaching was revolutionary for me. It changed um, my ideas of how I thought of myself as a woman, and it made it possible for me to think about being a mother. And um, I hope if this teaching is new to you that it will have a similar um, impact. So we're going to talk about the void that is filled when there's not enough of a bond between uh, mother and baby. Uh, men, please do not just tune me out. It's important for you also to understand these things. One, because you might be the one whose mother did not bond with you, and you really need this understanding and this teaching. Or B, you may be a father, or you may be an uncle, and um, what you have to give by way of understanding and supporting the women in your life is very significant. Um, just recently, I was en route to Denver on an airplane, and I sat down to, next to this uh, professor uh, from Vanderbilt University. He was working on his PowerPoint, and I was you know, trying to inconspicuously you know, look over to see what he was working on. And I started to see these really interesting slides like titled things like infant mental health and promoting mother-baby bonding. I was very curious as to what he was doing, and I found out that he is part of a program out of Vanderbilt called the Center on the Social and Emotional Foundations of Early Learning. So I asked him, um, do you teach on attachment? Are you like an expert? And as a good, humble academic, he said, well, there are people more expert than me, but this is like front and center of my teaching all 15 states that I travel to. Uh, what they started to realize is that you could have like the best preschool program in the world, the best kindergarten program in the world, but if the kids came to preschool and they already had this deep void in their lives, that it was literally like a learning disability. Um, it would make it very difficult for them to learn early in life. And um, the, the, the prognosis for the difficulties that might develop in their lives are immense. And so he works with um, communities and educators to get both um, educators and social workers into the homes of uh, poor women to help them know how to bond with their babies. Um, because they realize there are so many people who don't understand how to bond with their babies. They don't understand why it's important. They don't have any like building blocks, any kind of steps to understand what they're doing. Um, uh, surely if uh, the secular world has figured this out, uh, we as Christians, I would hope, would be like ahead of the eight ball here, but I'm not sure 
that we have. Um, I, I don't know if this is the, the case uh, universally, but my observation of just churches in general across the nation is that when we think of raising our children, often we want them to be really good and we want them to behave at all times. Uh, we want them to be very compliant, um, not to embarrass us at any time, to appear that they are like really good Christian kids, even from infancy. Um, and we can focus so much on getting them to be compliant that we miss some of these critically important things that have to do with attachment. When things go wrong in the attachment between mother and child, um, it can be quite profound. And I'll talk about that today and also about the way the Lord can heal some of these deepest wounds that a, heal, that a human being can experience. Um, for some of you, what I share today may bring up some anxiety and grief uh, from childhood. But I hope it also helps you to answer some questions about why you've struggled with certain things your whole life. Um, and if you have not yet embarked on the adventure of parenting, I hope this will be a foundation for you to uh, think about what you want your life to be like when you're nurturing your children. I do know that the Lord can heal the sadness, the anger, the emptiness at the core of your being. You might ask why we have to teach on this. And it's in part because there's something about our modern life that tends to militate against this. Uh, why is this not in the Bible? Because they didn't need to teach on this in the Bible. Uh, their culture um, took care of these things. And so we, we are living in a different um, time when we need to be able to really focus on this. It really came into focus right after World War II. Um, if you're familiar with European history at all, there were tens of millions of children who were displaced in Europe. They were either in orphanages or they were sent away to live in the safe parts of the countryside uh, during the war. So they endured uh, often years of separation from their parents. And after the war, uh, psychiatrists uh, like John Bowlby, John Bowlby is important, B-O-W-L-B-Y, and Anna Freud, who is the daughter of the famous Sigmund Freud, uh, began a systematic study of the emotional problems experienced by children who were raised in orphanages and those who had been separated from their parents. In the 1950s, they published groundbreaking studies about the importance of the bond between mother and child. And more recently, Bowlby's findings have been confirmed by neuroscientists who study the way attachment impacts uh, the brain. Uh, there are a number of people related to uh, this church who are uh, involved with some movements uh, like Emmanuel, um, uh, uh, belonging. There's a whole series of uh, curriculums that have been developed based on this newer uh, neuroscience. But really, it goes back to the 50s. It's not something that uh, just has been discovered. Uh, and this recent research does confirm that the healthy development of a baby's brain requires a strong attachment bond with a single caregiver, ideally the mother. And the vitality of that primary relationship is the best predictor of the future mental health of the child. A strong attachment is the foundation for success in school, meaningful relationships throughout life, resistance to addiction, the capacity to regulate emotions, 
and the ability to bounce back from life's hard knocks, just to name a few. Okay, here are uh, Bowlby's conclusions in a nutshell. Um, The bond between mother and child is a unique emotional relationship. It begins as a wordless, interactive, emotional exchange. Um, There have been some fascinating studies done recently about the bonding that occurs even in the womb. Um, The baby is already uh, making uh, a bond with with mom that is significant. Uh, But once baby is out of, um, is in arms, uh, mom needs to be both physically and emotionally present to the child. She She quiets his cries, nourishes him from her own breast. Her face lights up when she gazes into the newborn's eyes. And in a matter of weeks, the baby will smile back when he sees his mother's face. She is his fountain of life, joy, peace, and well-being. And every tiny, minute interaction between mother and child impacts that developing brain of the infant. These seemingly insignificant changes bring structure and order to the child's nervous system. Uh, During the first four years of life, this attachment bond between mother and child is critical to the little person's capacity to regulate his emotions and becomes the baseline of his capacity to form meaningful relationships with others throughout his or her life. It's the basis for the child's sense of self and identity. Um, This is a very important principle that's built into creation. Life comes from life. Uh, They actually validated some of these um, theories on these poor monkeys. You ever read these stories about these poor monkeys? Oh, it's terrible. You know, they they take the the poor little baby monkey away from its mother, and and then, like, they notice. They call it induced um, psychosis or something like that. I'm like, talk about animal cruelty. I mean, it's it's horrible. But um, it's... It's part of being a creature. Um, It's part of being a mammal, um, that that life comes from life, that there's this tremendous impartation life to life. uh, And there's really no way around that. Um, A second thing that uh, Bowlby points out is something that's called mirroring. Think of a mirror. You know, look at yourself in a mirror. Um, The baby responds or mirrors the caregiver's feelings and state of mind. So if the mother is anxious and afraid, the baby mirrors that same emotion. He feels anxious and afraid too. If the mother is peaceful and at rest, the baby enters into that same rest. Doesn't mean that the mother never gets upset, but if she's able to settle herself and recover her equilibrium, the child will acquire the same capacity. Um, Some theorists call this internalized sense of peace and contentment, um, a sense of well-being. This is not mystical at all. Uh, I don't know if you've ever put a child to sleep, but if, uh, you know, when you first lay down with the kid, maybe he can't go to sleep by himself, so you lay down, and um, they're squiggling, and and they're worming around, and you're tight, too, whatever your day And then as time goes on, your body kind of relaxes. And then you feel the body of the little one next to you. It starts to relax. Then someone will go, (sighs) and then the other one will go, (sighs) 
this fascinating way that we synchronize our emotions together. Um, dogs, by the way, do this too. Um, if you happen to be a dog lover that I, like I am, um, uh, dogs also synchronize with us in this way. And Psalm 31 that we just read beautifully captures that idea. You know, it's as an adult that David proclaims, I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Uh, most scholars think that uh, weaning, um, you know, during David's time was not like the American standard six months, but could easily have been two and a half, three and a half, up to four um, years. So you're really looking at the picture of this toddler who has come to a place of quiet peace in himself. And that really is the Lord's heart and desire for us. However, there are a lot of things uh, that can go wrong with this bond. And the consequences follow us into adulthood. The most serious threat to this attachment is some kind of prolonged separation or death of the mother. Uh, when Bowlby was writing in 1950, he was very controversial because he proposed that babies and toddlers grieved in the same way that adults grieved. That in the same way that, you know, you see a, a widow take two, three, four, five years to sort of regain a sense of self, um, that the grief just seems to go on and on. Um, at the time, the idea was, oh, well, the baby just needs a week or two, and then they'll kind of get over it. They'll forget that they were even attached to you. It's totally different. Infant grief is just, uh, you know, just kind of, they, they get over it. It's not real grief. And Bowlby said, oh, no, this is not true at all. This is real grief. Uh, this is a description of something that uh, he, he said was typical in... Um, like they're not really daycare centers they're more like it's more of an orphanage it's an overnight um, situation this is how he describes the child's experience he will cry loudly shake his cot throw himself about and look eagerly towards any sight or sound which might prove to be his missing mother this is the phase of protest um this phase may, with ups and downs, continue for as long as a week or more. Throughout it, the child seems buoyed up in his efforts and the hope and expectation that his mother will return. Sooner or later, however, despair sets in. The longing for mother's return does not diminish, but the hope of its being realized fades. Ultimately, the restless, noisy demands cease and he becomes apathetic and withdrawn. A despair broken only perhaps by an intermittent and monotonous wail. He is in a state of unutterable misery. If a child loses his mother's care at this age, when he is so possessively and passionately attached to her, it is indeed as if the world has been shattered. His intense need of her is unsatisfied. And the frustration and longing may send, him, may send him frantic with grief. He is as overwhelmed as any adult who has lost a beloved person by death. To the child of two, with his lack of understanding and complete inability to tolerate frustration, it is really as if his mother had died. 
She might as well be dead, so overwhelming is his sense of loss. After that initial protest and demand for his mother's return, the child becomes quieter. It would be a mistake, however, to suppose that this means the child has forgotten his parents. On the contrary, all the evidence is that in the case, as in the case of the adult, he remains highly oriented towards the lost object of love. Um, This is important if you ever see a child go through this. In many circumstances in life, other than death, unfortunately can be the cause of this. The child actually seems kind of peaceful and compliant. You think, oh, they seem to be handling it well. They seem kind of like to have adjusted to this. Uh, Don't assume that that is the case. It's important also to know that because that bond with our mothers forms uh, even in the womb, a child who is adopted at birth will grieve his mother. Even if his adoptive mother makes every effort to bond and even does bond successfully with the child, there still will be a core sadness, a core grief in the heart of the child. Uh, Similarly, a twin who survives when the other twin dies Uh, They, too, are haunted with this inexplicable grief that can cast a shadow over their whole lives. Uh, We are very fragile creatures. Okay, Bowlby, I have just a little more on Bowlby for you. Uh, So so make sure you get this clear in your mind. Bowlby says there are these stages. Starts with protest. um, And then it moves from protest um, to... Um, despair. Uh, But there are a few other uh, things that are going on at the same time. Um, In addition to these intense symptoms of grief, um, uh, children usually show two other signs of of extreme distress. Uh, The first is what um, psychologists call autoerotic activity. Um, Autoerotic simply means that uh, the child is doing something to his or her genitals to try to bring some comfort. Um, and so, you know, I mean, when you've got all these kids in orphanages, you're like, hmm, that's interesting. They're all like rubbing their genitals. What's up with that? Uh, it's because it is a very common human um, response. Uh, so the child, either male or female, feels that, um, that tension or pain in their genital area, and they attempt to soothe the discomfort um, by rubbing their genitals. To an adult, It looks like masturbation, but of course the child is a decade or more away from sexual maturity. Uh, But it is important to know that separation anxiety is the cause of this masturbation-like behavior in childhood. Uh, Men and women alike feel very ashamed of this often secretive and compulsive behavior that may have started before they can remember. Um, This is like a very... uh, uh, I don't know. The first time I heard someone say masturbation in church, I was like, <gasps> you know, <laughs> why? Uh, because there's so much shame, right, that we have um, related to this. That's why also you have to be 18 to come to these conferences, you know. Um, but the but I've had so many people say, you know, I this this has been a struggle with me for a long time. I say, how long? They say, oh, I don't know. I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't do this. Uh, so they're talking four, three, two, 
uh, this kind of behavior has been going on, and it's um, honest to Pete a sure sign of this um, insecure attachment. And as they mature, people uh, with this issue become more vulnerable to pornography addiction and to indulgence in other kinds of sexual fantasies. Uh, If this self-soothing habit is an addiction, there's really, I don't think, any way for the person to overcome their addiction unless they deal with this wound early in their lives. Uh, No matter of like behavior modification is going to um, bring you to a place of freedom. It, your healing hinges on addressing this deep wound uh, from the first years of life. Um, those with insecure attachments um, often develop some kind of addiction that has uh, some way of just warding off these feelings of grief and anger and despair that are always just below the surface. Okay, so... Um, this autoerotic behavior is one symptom. The other is anger and just sort of a generalized hostility. Um, I don't need to describe to you how angry a toddler can get. Um, and even babies can turn red from head to toe if they're really angry. It's normal of, uh, for children to get angry, of course, uh, even though it's very disconcerting for us as adults, uh, to exam- for example, to watch a toddler have a fit in the grocery store Um, It makes everyone around feel uncomfortable, and if you are, unfortunately, the parent, even more uncomfortable, um, right? But this anger in childhood is is normal, but those with these wounds early in life um, don't, like, grow out of it. Um, They might stop, like, laying on the floor and throwing themselves about, but deep inside, those tantrums are still uh, there. Uh, the anger arises from the loss that arises from this is unique. It's a grief about the tearing and the rending of this heart-to-heart, brain-to-brain connection. It's a loss that tears at the very fabric of personal identity. It creates a chasm of emptiness in the core of the personality. Everything in the child cries out, No, you can't leave me. I would rather die than live without you. In some cases, the child longs for death and may be preoccupied with death or images of death until the Lord, the giver of life, breaks into the prison of grief with his resurrection love. For others, anger towards the lost mother is the most obvious symptom of the child's grief. Uh, Bowlby says, an infant's anger over the loss of mother is prone to elicit intense and violent hatred for the mother figure. This anger is extremely confusing to the child. He longs for his mother, and yet he hates her at the same time. If the separation proves temporary, it's difficult, if not impossible, for her to trust him, trust mother, and repair the bond. So this is like heartbreaking for a mom. Sometimes we are separated for our kids for reasons that are completely outside of our control. they, they incur this injury, and then when we try to come back to repair the bond, they have given up hope, they've uh, fallen into despair, there's an anger there, and they have a hard time uh, reconnecting uh, with mom. Um, adults with this injury go through life desperate for the love of a woman. This can be true for both men and women. 
um, but unable, but they're unable to sustain meaningful relationships with women. Uh, some of the worst cases of misogyny, uh, meaning the hatred of women, um, and this is not just men who hate women, this is women who hate women, uh, begins with grief over a lost attachment to one's mother. Uh, Bowlby notes that eventually, once these stages of grief uh, progress through protest and despair, the child eventually be, does begin to seek out new relationships. In the best case scenario, there is a mother figure that the child can attach to and in many respects will treat her as though she were the mother. A little bit that Catherine shared from her story, her mother is in a depression. And here we have this amazing woman who is a gift from God who becomes this mother substitute figure. Um, when I was uh, talking to this professor on the airplane, I, I said to him, you know, is there any, like, word of hope for this? Because he's like, you know, if these kids don't get, get help, they may end up as delinquents. You know, like they may end up in our uh, criminal justice system. And I said, is there anything just in your experience statistically that makes the difference between whether these impoverished kids with no bond to mom, you know, make it or, like, don't make it? And he said, if there's one person, if there's one adult who will love them, and care for them with patience and build an attachment with them, it will turn the tide. Doesn't mean the person won't struggle, have some difficulties, but it can be the difference between something that absolutely destroys um, the psyche of the child and the capacity to overcome. Um, those relationships are a saving grace to a child. It's why it's so important for us to be open to adopt, to foster. It's not easy, but it's infinitely better than the alternative. Um, Bowlby says, if the child has no single person with whom he can relate, or where there's a succession of persons to whom he makes just brief attachments, as a rule, he becomes more self-centered and more prone to just making one shallow relationship after another. It's almost as though those patterns that are established in uh, infancy and toddlerhood uh, continue throughout the lifespan. Um, in some cases, uh, the child will attach to an object as a mother substitute. Most often, the child attaches to something that symbolizes the mother, such as the breast, women's underwear, an article of clothing, a shoe, um, some of the strange... Um, fetishes, uh, you know, some burly man, and then it, it's uncovered that, uh, like, he wears girly underwear, you know, under the burly, you know, it's like this big, like, fireman guy, but he's wearing underwear. What's, what's up with that, you know? Um, that's where these needs come from, uh, where in lieu of bonding with a real person, the child bonds with something, with an object. And a child can become obsessed, preoccupied with these objects for years, and then in time, the object may become a sexual fetish once the person reaches adulthood. Uh, this is why, uh, you know, as pastors, when some, someone comes to us, I mean, to admit that you are, like, turned on by some, like, completely random thing, it takes so much courage to come and to admit that. Uh, but we always receive that person with so much compassion. Um, I would say without exception there's this deep wound in the heart. It's not because you were just like naturally screwed up, perverted person. Um, it's because deep down 
um, there's, a, there's a hurt. Uh, the list of profoundly debilitating consequences of infant grief uh, just goes on and on. Uh, from garden variety depression and anxiety to every variety of mental illness. Uh, Bowlby and others um, warn that these traumas can, quote, dislocate the development of the personality. I'm going to talk a little bit about the loss of mother's love versus uh, separation and also the fallen condition. Um, as you listen to this, you might be thinking, you know, I have some of those symptoms, but I don't have any, as far as I know, there were not any prolonged separations from my mother. And you might be right. Uh, the sad fact of the matter is that no mother is perfect. And in our fallen world, uh, there are often interruptions and strains on this attachment be process between mother and child. Um, and for whatever reason, uh, human beings, we have a long span of attachment compared uh, to other mammals, like four years. That gives four years is a long time for something to go wrong um, in, the, in this bond. Um, here are a few things. If the mother has depression or anxiety or grief or any other kind of mental illness or distress, it makes bonding more difficult, and also the infant will mirror that, that feeling. Uh, the, the, it's almost like um, the child takes it in, almost like they were drinking it in with the mother's milk. Um, the child takes in the mother's anxiety or grief or whatever it is. Uh, many studies have shown that maternal stress inhibits um, even the hormones in the mother's brain uh, needed for successful attachment. So if mom is trying to cope with a difficult marriage, for example, it will be very difficult for her to bond with her baby. Um, traumatic or premature births, time spent in an incubator can inhibit the infant's capacity to bond. Um, any prolonged separation from mom through about age four, especially during a time of stress for a child, can catapult the child into a full-fledged grieving cycle. Um, I have a childhood friend. Uh, they were neighbors of ours. There's three kids in the family. And uh, the youngest daughter, when she was three, um, contracted this strange infection that attacked the heart. And um, she went into a coma. She was in a coma for eight days. And then because of the nature of the infection, she also had to be in isolation for an extended period of time. And um, I don't know what happened to her during the course of that time, but it was very interesting to watch the two sisters through the course of their lives. They have the same mom, the same dad, but the one, the youngest sister, has this traumatic separation from mom uh, at, at age three. Um, uh, the mom is still a good friend of mine, and she reflected to me uh, just recently, I was visiting with her, that one time mom and two daughters, they're teenagers, are you know at a mall somewhere and um, the three of them stop at a window display and um, the older uh, daughter, the one without the injury says, oh, I just love that. It's a dress or something. The mom says, oh, I do too. That, oh, they, they're just kind of gaggling over it. You know, it's just really caught their attention. And then the younger sister says, I don't know. I don't, I don't really care about polka dots. And the, the, the older sister and the mother are like, polka dots? I don't see any polka dots. There's this, it, it was like, Jenny is like in her own little world. 
Um, there's a, a kind of synchronization between the older daughter and the mom, but a disconnection for the younger one. Uh, several times during uh, junior high, she would run away, and when they finally found her, or whatever, so sometimes the police would have to be involved, uh, it would be like, why'd you run away? Well, I think that you love the other children more than me. Did she actually love the other children more than her? No. But because of that, that rending, that um, difficulty early in life, it was difficult for her to receive her mother's love. Um, another thing, this is kind of depressing, is that difficulties with attachment tend to be passed on from one generation to the next. If your mother had trouble attaching with her mother, you may have you may have had trouble attaching with her, and in turn, you may have trouble attaching with your own children. Um, when you look at these like scientific things, you know what are the predictors for problems in attachment? Uh, like way up there on the list is like attachment problems with your own mom. Um, so there is this really tragic way that this this wound tends to be passed from one generation to the next. Unless something happens to break the cycle. In a little bit, we'll pray for that. Um, I'm going to tell you just a little bit of my story. My mom um, had every intention of being a stay-at-home mom. But after the first year, she was feeling um, not just cooped up, but like she was going a little bit mentally ill. Um, she realized that she'd become like this like obsessive compulsive housekeeper and that she felt like she needed to like go back to work um, in order to keep her sanity. And what it meant was when she was busy up, obsessively compulsively cleaning the house, I was the compliant child who had fallen into despair um, and given her all the space in the world that she needed to um, clean. So I had that initial lack of attachment um, and then my uh, caregiver was uh, okay, but not great. Um, I had another separation when I was um, about five, uh, which wouldn't maybe not have been as big a deal if I wouldn't have already had such an insecure attachment. Um, but it left me with anxiety, with depression, with a lot of ambivalence when it came to thinking about having children of my own, of being a mother. Um, some of you, maybe you haven't had children, Maybe there's a deep fear in your heart that you may not be able to nurture your children. Um, the Lord is here to help you, to overcome. Um, to be a mom is a heroic undertaking. Uh, moms of young children, they need the support of their husbands, their friends, the church. It will take everything you've got to be a good mom. And even then you'll feel like it's not enough. Keith will say a little more about dads uh, later. But dads are important here in the same way that a mom helps to invite the child into that sense of peace and quiet and joy. Um, as the child gets older, dad also has a huge part in that. If for some reason dad has been marginalized, he's not in the picture um, kids come, mom is not enough. Children need mother and they need father to come together into this, uh, to achieve this sense of well-being. Um, 
Ultimately, that sense of being and well-being comes from God. That's why we dare to take risks in parenting, to throw ourselves into situations that overwhelm us, uh, because we know that ultimately that source of life and of being is something that we mediate to our children. Um, Let me say a little bit about um, healing now. Um, Bowlby's uh, expectations of the possibility for healing for kids was pretty minimal. Sort of like, you're doomed forever if you have this problem. One of the great things that has come out of the newer neuroscience is that the brain has far more plasticity than was previously believed. There are ways to overcome handicaps related to insecure attachment. Uh, Children and adults can be taught skills to compensate for um, and sometimes make up for what's missing. There are also remarkable outcomes uh, with therapy that involves horses and dogs, things that focus on that nonverbal, tactile uh, attachment that we form with animals and that they form with us. And uh, that this plasticity, this inherent changeableness of the human nervous system is something that's great news for those of us who pray for the healing of these wounds. Um, Healing is never just spiritual. The Spirit of God touches and changes our bodies through prayer. Um, As Christian, we believe that salvation is given through a living person, Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man, a human being who had real flesh and blood attachments. As a baby, he nursed from the breast of his mother. As a boy, he learned his trade and how to be a man from his father. As an adult, he made friends with men and with women who were willing to leave everything to follow him. And throughout his life, he relied on his attachment to the Holy Spirit. Um, Theologically, the Christian understanding of attachment finds its source in the Trinity, in the attachments, the relationships of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. God is love, and our capacity for attachment to him and to others begins with the simple fact that we are made in the image of God. Uh, And because God is love, he has an infinite capacity to attach to every person he has made. Even the most desperately wounded person can make an attachment to God. These form them, even people from the most dysfunctional and abusive homes can obtain the elemental building block of attachment from the Lord, the giver of life. Um, So how do we begin to pray for those who feel like there is this gigantic void of emptiness at the core of their being? How do we pray for those who have felt rejected and abandoned from the earliest years of their lives? Um, uh, There aren't that many people that want to dive into this in prayer. I think they would prefer to deal with it in therapy. Um, But I think there's a pretty good track record. I know two women who I think in some ways pioneered this. One is a woman in um, London. Her name is Lynn Button. And I think she actually probably was praying with some of these very people that were like Bulby's test subjects, you know. And um, she found as she listened to their stories and she asked the Lord to help them to come present to their grief. And she prayed that the Lord would minister into them his love and care. Now... She can get away with this because she has an English accent, but um, she would call it the hugs and snuggles prayer. 
Now, Keith said, do not mention hugs and snuggles. The men are going to be like, eh, okay, right? But she's praying for these big, burly guys with her maternal presence. And she says, hugs and snuggles. And they start falling apart at the seams, okay? Because deep in their heart as men is this longing for mom, this longing for attachment. Uh, the other woman, I think, who has really pioneered this is um, Leanne Payne. You'll find all of her books on the book table. And she mentions, especially um, in The Broken Image, the significance of this wound. And she connects it between this and um, uh, the issue of homosexuality, how this is related to homosexuality, which uh, I, I think has been uh, neglected pretty much by everyone except her and probably Andy Comiskey. Okay, so what do we need to do? We need first to repent of the sins that we have indulged in in an attempt to fill this void. We need to forgive our mothers and our fathers. And then we need to enter into union with Christ. Uh, We can identify with Jesus um, as an infant, as a toddler. Um, Irenaeus, uh, the great uh, second century theologian, said, Um, Christ became an infant in order to redeem infancy. That's a phrase worth meditating on. Um, You may not have gotten everything that you needed from your mom, but Jesus did. Uh, In the arms of Mary, he received from her all that he needed. He is still full of mother love, full to the brim. And he, when he ascended into heaven and took his body with him, he brought that sense of fullness and completion, that sense of well-being with him. And he is present here everywhere with us and can share out of his abundance uh, with us. He also knows what it means to be forsaken. He said on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? His suffering is so varied, so deep, that he can say with authority, I've been there, let me meet you in your suffering and come into your loneliness. The Lord gives us permission to grieve these losses without shame. And finally, we can identify with Christ's resurrection. If something died in us because of one of these wounds, um, The Lord, the giver of life, the one who has been raised from the dead, can give new life to us. But Jesus offers himself to us as the bread of life, the water of life, the light of life, eternal life of all people. 